Welcome to the Faithful Citizen Podcast. I'm Reverend Leah Daughtry, and today I'm joined by some colleagues from varying faith traditions as we come together to discuss, dissect, debate the issues of the day. We hope that this roundtable discussion will give us an opportunity to dive into some particular topics, find points of agreement, points of disagreement, and points of debate as we look at the issues that are facing us in our nation. So come, let us reason together. I'm so thrilled to welcome uh, a panel, a roundtable of uh, friends and colleagues who will be part of our conversation today. First, please join me in welcoming Dr. Sean Casey, the director of the Georgetown University Berkeley Center on uh, Religion, Peace, and World Affairs, and author of the soon coming book, Chasing the Devil at Foggy Bottom, The Future <laughs> of Religion and American Diplomacy. Can't wait for that. Also, my sister, my friend, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, who is the senior rabbi at Congregation Bet Shumhat Torah. That's testing out all my seminary Hebrew. Excellent. Uh, and, and of course, my friend and brother, uh, Pastor Michael McBride, the senior pastor at the Way Christian Church in Berkeley, California, and founder, my co-founder and chair of Black Church Pack. Welcome, friends. I am so glad that you're with me today for this great conversation. As you know, I wanted to convene some of my friends to kind of peel back the layers on this whole discussion about faith in the public square and what it means to us. And I couldn't think of three better people for to join me in these roundtables, which I'm calling, let's reason together. So let me kick off with this first question. When it comes to faith in the public square, What's your particular approach? Are there lines that you won't cross? Uh, are there issues that you feel are outside of your scope? Uh, I'm gonna start with you, Sean. Uh, well, well, thank you, Bishop Lee. It's an honor to be here with you and, and, and Rabbi Sharon and, and Pastor Mike. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Uh, if I look back on my 64 years on this planet, I, I've had quite the pilgrimage both across America, but across various um, community boundaries, religious community boundaries. And I think I grew up in a very small Southern white evangelical sect, where at least in theory, uh, we believed God was everywhere and that there were no forbidden zones that we couldn't bring our, our faith to. Uh, now, bringing your faith into a, a very pluralistic, complex society like the United States is, is a daunting task, and you're bound to make mistakes, and, and communities are going to have strengths, and they're going to have weaknesses. But we were led to believe as children that to be a faithful Christian meant that we were to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that God was working through all people, but particularly our community as well, uh, to bring God's presence and, and healing wherever we encountered people in need. And that was a very lofty, uh, very uh, awe-inspiring, broad mission but we were actually pretty lousy in living out that vision. We tended to be very, very tribal, and we tended to see the boundary of God's love for the world pretty much coterminous with the boundaries of our own community. 
And so as I grew up and began to see people around me in need that my community didn't seem to view as neighbor, we certainly didn't love them as our neighbor, uh, I began to be very troubled that uh, my, my particular community had very narrow, oftentimes racially and class shaded lenses through which we, we viewed the people around us. And, and that sent me, sent me, frankly, on a lifelong pilgrimage of learning. And that pilgrimage has taken me uh, to a diverse community like Harvard Divinity School, where we used to joke, if there was a, a form of lived religion around the world, somebody on the faculty or staff or the student body lived it and embodied it themselves. And then recently I got to spend four years working as a special representative for religion and global affairs at the US State Department, where I built an interreligious staff uh, and we traveled the world and literally engaged thousands of different religious communities. So now I, I think I would say uh, religious communities are involved for good or for ill and a million stops in between. Uh, and I'm drawn to understanding what are the political implications of lived religion and practice. So I'm trying to live out a much more inclusive view of, of discipleship from my Christian perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you follow on to that, Sharon? Where, where, where are your boundaries or are, do you have any? It's a really important question. You know, for me as a Jew, uh, coming the United States represents with the uh, Bill of Rights the first time that Jews as a minority religion were ever protected in world history. So in the Jewish community, and for me, I, I hold the First Amendment that with the clause that both protects religious practice as well as uh, the Establishment Clause, which says even minority religions will be protected, that the state won't impose a religion. I take that very much to heart. So I try to balance out uh, uh, in reflecting that both the commitment to protecting religions, even religions with whom I have profound disagreements to practice within the confines of their churches or synagogues or mosques, mm -hmm. religious practices that I might not uh, agree with even ones that would that would oppress me as an LGBT person. However, I draw the line at their right to codify those things into law. So it's a balance that I do respect and feel so strongly about the First Amendment. And of course, we also know that the First Amendment has limitations, that the state can, of course, limit some religious practices. We don't allow child sacrifice, even if a religion were to say that's central to their identity as a religion. So I struggle with that and want to land. And I, and I would say that sometimes I feel like I've made the right choices on that. How do I protect the right, for instance, of, my, of religions and maybe even my own religious co-religionists who are virulently, for instance, anti-gay or anti-abortion and my personal religious beliefs protect those two things so how do we both allow them to have religious practices which are authentically protected by our First Amendment, but also not allow them to codify those religious practices into law? And that's where I find myself the, at, the, at this critical and I think important intersection that I only wish more of my religious uh, colleagues would engage in. And I'll just give you one small example of why I think it's so critical. We would never imagine the Catholic Church, which has an anti-divorce position inside the church, to codify an anti-divorce position for civil marriage in this country. 
No one would stand for it. After all, most politicians would not be able to get remarried in this country, right? If the Catholic Church were allowed to codify their positions on divorce into civil law, everybody would agree with that. Well, it's so obvious. And yet we're told, well, we might, maybe it's a legitimate thing that the Catholic Church or another religious position, which is anti-gay marriage, should be able to codify that. So this ability to live both respecting religion's right to practice without interference by the state, but on the other hand, needing to draw a line at what civil law or civil practice might be, that is where I live with a lot of tension. And, and I think, and I know that you, Bishop, have done a lot of deep thinking about this. And this is where we as progressive religious voices have to be at the forefront to sometimes protect those who we might disagree with, but they have the right to practice it religiously, but to call them out when they want to codify it into law. And that's, that's where our challenge is, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Mike, uh, I'm going to pass it back. I'll come to you because you and I are both from what has been a traditionally conservative uh, faith tradition, I, although I think we've both found our bound our way around that. But, you know, <coughs> sometimes we by ourselves in finding our way around that. How, how are you navigating the differences and what's your approach to faith in, in the public square? Well, I, I'll... Um... I'll share this this kind of frame, which is kind of what I share with our our organizers or faith leaders um, who are seeking to join um, freedom fighting work, particularly as a faith leader. That there is no pure place to stand and do the work of justice, um, nor is there a safe place <laughs> to stand and do the work of justice. Um, meaning that um, you know. Uh, Often, I think we allow ourselves to uh, be overwhelmed by um, the, the kinds of intersections that rightly cause dissonance in many of our, our lives and uh, the narratives that uh, promulgate you know, everywhere that uh, you agree with parts of it, but you disagree with other parts of it. And so I, I think um, being a faithful citizen is about being comfortable living in the tension. Yep. Um, the tension of um, how we would describe it in my tradition, a, a fallen world, a world uh, of people who are, who are ripe, including myself with contradictions, um, but uh, who also have a spark of the divine within them. And hopefully uh, our work collectively uh, creates space for that divine um, genius and compassion and and love to, to shine through. Um, even some of our most, you know, uh, conflicting, um, you know, hard to get along with evangelicals uh, during, <laughs> during a crisis, a media crisis, like I say, a car accident on the side of the road, um, those hard to get along with evangelicals would likely rush to the support of someone in immediate danger. Likewise, with a little thought, they could also storm the Capitol <laughs> and cause harm to people disagree with, right? And, and, you know, evangelicals, you know, and Trump supporters are easy targets, but I have found that all of us have these moments where um, our contradictions can get the best of us. So I, I try to encourage folks to 
to be gentle with yourself, to, to be humble, um, to, to listen more than you talk, um, and to be willing to grow, you know. Um, as a faithful citizen, um, you know, I, I've tried, particularly as a pastor, to lead with a pastor's heart. Um, the, the kind of fundamentalist views I, I had uh, or I was raised, um, formed and shaped by uh, were shattered as I pastored more and more people who obviously loved God, um, who cared about humanity and creation, but didn't fit in the, into the boxes um, that were handed down to me. And so um, I think I think being comfortable living in attention is 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 how I would invite folks to to, to think about this question. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right, and I think there's this is this. Um... I call them moments of grace. You know, there's nothing like experience. I think experience, whoever said experience is the best teacher was absolutely mm. right because there's nothing like experience and actually sitting with someone yeah. in your office who is wrestling with yeah. whatever their issue is that will help stretch your heart, stretch your compassion and help you to see issues in a different way, at least that's been my experience. I want to stay for a moment with this note of the contradictions that we navigate as faith leaders. And, you know, one of the things I always tell my people, just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I have all the answers because I don't. I'm just, I'm just dedicated to trying. (laughs) I'm just dedicated to the search. Right. Yeah. Doesn't mean I know I, I have all the answers, but this notion of the of living in the tension and the contradiction. I don't think in this country we've ever been divided more at any time than I think the Civil War, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and in recent days, we've seen our Congress unable to agree on things as basic as eradicating child poverty. as providing unemployed people with benefits. They're criminalizing the provision of food and water to voters who are standing in line. And even something that seems as simple as wearing a mask and getting a vaccine that will prevent disease has become this flashpoint. Um, And so much of it is couched in the language of faith. Yep. So much of the rationale is couched in the language of faith in, in this search for what's truth and what's a lie. And we recognize that as faith language, right? When you're trying to decide what's true and what's not. How, do you, how did this happen to us? Was it always there? Is this a new phenomenon? And how can we address this weaponization of our faith traditions, of our core beliefs? that we seem to have come to now in America. We can't even agree that January 6th actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> right? Where, where, where do we go? Where, how did this happen? What, yeah. what do we do about it? Rabbi, what, what do you think? You know, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was one of the great Jewish philosophers of the 20th century and was himself a refugee from uh, Nazi Germany and by a miracle, got to the United States in 1939 on a, on a scholar's visa, but couldn't get his family out and spent the war years trying to get his family and he was not successful and they ended up being murdered. In 1944, he wrote an essay which, in which there's a line which he says, as evil as the fascists are, we have to be that degree good. That's what God demands of us. And I keep that in front of my consciousness all day, every day in these past years, that 
as evil as the fascists are, we have to be that degree good. And um, Heschel never lost hope. And if he, it, I, I just don't even understand it, honestly. And he remained a deep person of faith in the midst of such unspeakable uh, evil that I try to keep that focus for myself, that I can't afford to give up. I mean, I agree that the, the level of uh, hate and lies, it just feels like it's a tsunami coming out of us, coming at us all every day from every direction. I just have to, that's where I feel as a religious person, it keeps me, you know, keeping on. I'm not sure what I would do without my faith, which is, I keep saying to myself, okay, if they're gonna get more and more evil, that's God demanding of me to get more and more good. And we who have to keep just spreading the good uh, and the decent and the, and the sense of love and hope and light more and more and more and more. Uh, I'm not sure there is another answer. We see, you know, in the 1950s, Will Herberg uh, wrote a very famous book called uh, Catholic Protestant Jew which was his analysis of American religious landscape. And of course we know now those landscapes are totally transformed and many, 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 many more religions are of course a part of the landscape, but he saw them as silos. And he described in the fifties that Jews, Protestants and Catholics lived in these silos. Schools were different, even public schools, neighborhoods were different, <clears throat> social clubs, socialization were really different. I think the world we're in living now is horizontal to Herberg's silos. And we have this horizontal line that cuts, cuts across all of our religious traditions. And there's the progressive liberal traditions on one side of the line. And then there's the, um, uh, I don't even know how to call them, sometimes fundamentalists is used, sometimes uh, radical right, whatever description. I know I find myself sharing more with other progressive uh, Catholics or Chris or Protestants or Muslims than I do with the Jews in my, my own co-religionists who have become uh, part of what I see as a cult. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and the landscape of American religious life has changed. I'm much closer to those who are, you know, 50 years ago, it would have been unthinkable for a, a Protestant and a Catholic to feel closer than they do with right wings of their wings and same is true for us and i think this is a very strange moment in time we are in and i do think we need to keep deepening the connections that are already there naturally and speaking out in languages of god and morality and not allowing those within our own traditions who are i believe hijacking religious language and using it as you say as a weapon of uh, to hurt and to oppress. And we have to keep reclaiming God as the force for liberation and justice and love. And that's become radical to say that God is the force of love in the world. Uh, it's, 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 it's mind boggling to me, but that's uh, where we are. We need each other so much more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sean, what's your, what's your thought about how we even got to this point? <laughs> when, oh my. When, how did this happen? I mean, I, I think we can all agree there's always been a, a, a division when it comes to faith. We know that from the slave masters who had one had one Bible and the enslaved yeah. 
who did their own work of theology to come with a different interpretation. But it, it just feels to me that we are in a completely different uh, or, or at the far edges of, of this sort of weaponization. And so how do you think we got here? Is, is there anything to be done? Oh boy, those, those are two huge questions. Let me, let me try to take a quick stab. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think you have to point the blame to the extent you can pick out one or two communities in white Christian communities. And the, the explosive factor here is bad theology. It's a theology of white supremacy. Uh, it, it's a, a theology of an eternal covenant between the understanding of the gospel and who gets to run the government. Uh, and that was a, a form of theology that, that underwrote National Socialism and the Nazi regime in World War II that assumed that a form of white, in this case, Protestant Christianity was the, the, the ultimate experience of what it was to be a human being. And that came at the expense of people who were Jews, who were gays, who were uh, other outcasts uh, of, of Western European society. So at the heart of our current instability is a magnification of bad Christian white theology. Now that you, you look, that bad theology is found among mainline Protestants. It's found among white evangelicals. It's found in the Roman Catholic church, but at the heart of it is a fundamental mistake that says God is literally on my side and oh, sorry about you guys who don't happen to be white Christians like we are. Uh, and when you make that eternal covenant between your, your view of the church and your view of the government, then all bets are off for those communities that don't happen to be dominated by white male Christians. And that view has ebbed and flowed over the history of Christianity. But here we find ourselves in the early 21st century where there is literally a body count attached to this theology. It's not the first time there's been a body account. The numbers that are piling up today are, are larger than they've been in generations. Now, where I was raised, one of the fundamental understandings of the gospel writ large was the, the centrality of repentance, where when you come to an understanding of your own failings and the redemption that God offers you, you change your thinking, but you also change your behavior. And that's where I think the breakdown in contemporary Christian theology is particularly pernicious, that it's not just changing our mind about how the world works and where God is and what God is doing in the world, but how do we change our behavior? And there's this wonderful sermon at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that preachers love and congregations hate. Uh, it's where John the Baptist speaks, and he, he mouths that line that everybody who's climbed into a pulpit on a regular basis would love to mouth, but we're too chicken to do it. He starts out by saying, you brood of snakes, <laughs> and then he goes on from there, and he attacks the rich and says, if you have two coats, give one away. He attaches the powerful the, the agents of the military, the tax collectors who fund uh, the, the, um, the empire, and he tells them, don't cheat people. Only take what is yours and let people have what is theirs. There is no conception at the level of lived theology in so many white Christian churches today of repentance, of needing to change our behavior consistently as we realize we failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And instead, we think we've changed our mind, but we keep treating poorly those around us who are, who are oppressed. 
And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of Christian theology. And I think if you get that wrong, you're going to be in the business business of hurting people, not helping people in the name of God and, and distributing the good gifts you have received with those around you in need, no matter what their, their country of origin, no matter what their religious belief or lack of belief. But I think that's really the heart of what's going on in America today is that our, our churches are being served, white Christian churches, are being so served by a fundamental misunderstanding of what the message of the gospel is. And we're treating people in absolutely unholy ways today. And that's infected the white church. So I think the, the outstanding theological question is, does these, do these churches, and I include myself in this, do we have the capacity to repent in a way that actually changes our behavior towards those we're supposed to be loving, who instead we are ignoring or we're oppressing them uh, actively? And, and that, you know, I th we go back to, to, to January 6th. I mean, the, the notion that somehow, oh, that didn't take place, or oh, it was just really this mis grave misunderstanding. Fundamentally, that church, the white churches that have propagated this theology, need to change their mind and change their behavior. As, as the Gospel of Luke put it, you know, John the Baptist says, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. So it's not just enough to say, I've changed my thinking. Please don't, don't hang that on me anymore. I, I don't think that way. That's good. That's the beginning of hope. But what are you doing differently to those around you? And that's where the, the white Christian church today in America is failing. Now, you got me started preaching. I'm sorry. I'm not, you guys are the professional preachers. I apologize. I'm just a professor. But, but. Well, Reverend Casey is taking a text, and all he needs is a little organ. He got to listen, listen, listen. So, so Pastor Mike, I've heard you talk about uh, wickedness in high places and uh, the, the need for repentance. And so what's, what's your view about where we are, how we got here? And, and I want to throw this in there. How have we as faith leaders been complicit in the in the place where we are now? Have we played a role in us getting to this sort of divisiveness? I am one of these people who who believe when we misremember history and we um, we continue to uphold false narratives of history, um, we create citizens, Christians, religious people who have amnesia. Um, and and the amnesia most religious peoples and American citizens suffer from allows the kind of rise every generation of a new expression of virulent white supremacist um, sensibilities to take root in a new generation's heart. Um, I just think it's really important for us to 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 keep reminding ourselves that. Um, this division that we see today has existed particularly along the race and color line since the inception of this country. And whiteness has been that dividing line. Um, not every person who is considered white today was considered white earlier in this country's journey. Jewish folk weren't considered white. Polish folk weren't considered white. Italians weren't considered white. Um, and black folk will never be considered white, even though some black folks seem to want to reach for whiteness, right? And so there's always, I think, just this challenge of us naming that the issue of white supremacy is the per pervasive 
um, wickedness in high places. And so many individuals, I think, believe that uh, you can negotiate with this uh, principality and you can, you can contain it uh, versus us making a commitment that we will defeat it, literally defeat the principality of white supremacy and racial hierarchy. And our complicity as faith leaders is us not taking this wickedness seriously um, because it is often at work among too many people we know and love. And it is very difficult uh, to cast out the devil of people you know and love, right? <clears throat> so I, I do believe we have a responsibility to look among ourselves, look within our theologies and interrogate that. Um, you know, the, the scriptures uh, say uh, in one of the Pauline texts that the spirit gives life, but the letter of the law kills which to me is just another expression of, of the danger of fundamentalism in any religious, political, or ideological context, that our lives are much too complex to be reduced to um, you know, some, some particularly rigid frames um, that don't give a full account of the complexity of not just our history, but our present. And too often people are living into rigidities which create the, the kind of tectonic uh, um, disruptions that we are experiencing. And so my hope is that faith leaders, particularly as we struggle through this, uh, um, this trifecta of Trumpism, COVID-19, and the lingering uh, issues of white supremacy, et cetera, that we will continue to be people that can help our folks make sense of a new world, a new society that we must create um, where people are living into a sense of belonging and not exclusion or othering. Um, and if there are any rich resources where we could help folks shape that kind of imagination, I do believe it is the power of our faith. It is the power of our religious texts, the best that they have to offer, coupled with um, the traditions and the practices of us gathering and embracing and loving one another. We have sources and we have materials, uh, but we must trust those sources and materials and extract the life, the spirit out of those and give them to our people as a way to resist the wickedness we see today. Uh, that has, uh, in, as a matter of fact, been uh, perpetually present um, throughout the duration of this country. Let's remember the United States is a relatively young country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you, when you judge it, and stand it next to other countries, you know, 250 years is not a long time. Uh, and we're, we're still in a pretty adolescent and fragile state. And I don't, I think if we don't correct it, the United States may not uh, survive as it's currently constituted. Um, and that may not be a bad thing. You know, we may need to reimagine what it means to be uh, who we are as a nation um, in a post racist, quote unquote, society. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Um, really good. Yeah, I often think about, um, particularly post-Trump, and I remember when he was, when he first announced he was running for president, everybody said, oh, he'll never win. Oh, this is great. He has no experience. And nobody took it seriously until he was the nominee, and then everybody said, oh, goodness. Mm. 
he's the nominee. And then it was like, oh, he can't win. He won't win. Oh, goodness. He's the president. Oh, he won't do this. With... Oh, goodness. Everything we thought he wouldn't do is exactly what he did because we didn't take it seriously uh, from the beginning. And it, it, it made me think about all of us faith leaders, particularly years ago, you know, white mainline, and look, a lot of black preachers too, a lot of Jewish folks who just didn't get involved because ah, it's not that big a deal. Ah, it's not serious. Ah, you know, let's just save people and get them to heaven. Let's just, you know, we just we just were silent. Too many of us were silent through Reagan and silent through Bush and silent through Iraq because we had nothing to say or we couldn't didn't know what to say. And then we get Trump. Now, I will say, at least from our work in Black Church Pack, that I think Trump did something among um a lot of people of good faith, of people of faith, of goodwill that made them say, holy crap, <laughs> I got to say something. I got to do something. I got to be somewhere. I have to, because this has gone a bridge too far. Mm-hmm. How do we maintain that and grow that? How do we teach people? How do we motivate our own communities of faith to say, you got to pay attention. It should be wrong that you can't give out food and water. The basic principles of all the faith tradition that you feed the hungry, you give water to the thirsty. It's now illegal. Mm. It's now illegal. That should be a a violation of, uh, we should all be filing lawsuits just on the basis of freedom of religion. (laughs) We're not being allowed to practice our religion when we can't hand out food and water. How do we keep a momentum going? How to the extent that you even think there's a momentum, and I'm willing to argue that point. Uh, what do we do now, now that we're in Joe Biden's America and people are feeling a little relaxed, you know, COVID is going down, you know, people are feeling better. What do we do to keep people focused or to get people focused so that we are the grace that we should be in the world? Well, I'll, I'll say, you know, one of the prophets, we grew up in my holiness Pentecostal church singing this song. I think it's from Isaiah or Jeremiah. It says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet in Zion. Show my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sin. Boy, we were singing that song till the Holy Ghost fell, boy. The folks was rolling. You know what I'm talking about, Bishop Lear, right? I mean, I, I think we got to keep crying aloud and sparing not. I mean, I, I think that um, it is the job of religious leaders, in my mind, to never become prophets uh, of the empire, chaplains of the empire, rather. I'm sorry. Um, no matter who is in office, no matter who is the president, who is the, 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 the mayor, the governor, there is always enough social sin to keep the church, religious people busy, crying aloud and sparing not. Um, and I think that um, the kind of national quickness on display at the state legislature's level, where they are rolling back voting rights in half of the states in this union, I mean, we can call it Joe Biden's America all we want, but the reality is this is still too much of Donald Trump's America, too much of the white supremacist America, 
And if all politics is local, we must continue to cry aloud and spare not and demonstrate that the prophetic voice of religious institutions uh, does not uh, rise or fall based off of who is the elected official in office. Um, I do believe that we have a responsibility to continue to qu question and call out the triplets of evil, as Dr. King powerfully states, militarism, economic exploitation, and racism. Uh, Dr. Barber adds ecological uh, uh, disaster, you know, around climate change. Um, you know, racism can, can embody all of the human hierarchies of sexism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia. I mean, there's a lot of work to do <laughs> where we don't have to, like, you know, rest on our laurels because uh, we defeated Donald Trump in, in one election. And let us not sell ourselves short. That was a Herculean effort. I think people don't appreciate that uh, we're likely one of the few countries in the world that defeated uh, a, a neo-fascist who came to power in the last 50 years through an election, and that was largely because of the, the the voting prowess of black communities, black and brown Asian communities, black women, you know, leading the charge, people with criminal convictions having their rights restored. So there's a rising American electorate that was grounded, one could argue, in our moral and faith traditions that saw this evil and wickedness, even though many white voters could not see it. And we must continue to pull the scales off the eyes of our comrades and friends and family members in real time. So we do not allow this wickedness uh, unabated to overwhelm us. Again, this may be the undoing of the United States as we know it, but it ought not be the undoing because people of faith sit on the sidelines and watch it happen without us literally putting our bodies, our denominations, our religious institutions on the line to try and save the soul of this country because literally it is the bodies of the poor and the broken and the dispossessed that will bear the greatest uh, brunt of this fall of America should it happen on our watch. Mm -hmm. yeah. Rabbi Sharon, what do you think? One of the things I'm very concerned about is the 2022 election and the 2024 election. I don't think we've defeated Trump. We got him out of office in this moment. Um, and whether or not he himself will reemerge as a power, that's we can argue about that. But I do think there might be another version of him even smarter that's going to reemerge. I think we could safe to say that's going to happen. Do we have the staying power to actually understand we've got to do something? You know, Viktor Orban was defeated in an election in Hungary. He was out of office for two election cycles. And while he was out of office, he organized a right-wing movement to take over Hungary. And eight years after he lost the election, he came roaring back with a right-wing, you know, homophobic, anti-Semitic, anti-West movement that put him into power. And he has been dismantling the young uh, democratic institutions of Hungary ever since. So I think we have to do exactly what Pastor Mike said and also understand what's coming up in 22. If we lose the House or the Senate in 2022, we're going to lose the presidency in 2024. They will dismantle whatever we can. We've got to be focusing on the state houses and on the state legislatures. And I know people are exhausted that this last election in the last four years just wiped everybody out. But we have to do a lot of coalition work that I think we've laid. 
as bad as things were, I think there was a level of coalition work that we've also never seen before, a level of intense allyship work, of thinking through every group, thinking about in what ways are we do we need allies and in what ways can we be an ally? And that uh, that's really exciting to see. I think that's, we at CBSC, we just published a book that called Chaver um, Up, called 49 Rabbis Explore What It Means to Be an Ally Through a Modern Jewish Lens. Because we understand right now being an ally, we have to, there's no splitting us up if we're gonna successfully have a future in which our values of decency are gonna be at the forefront. And I am really worried about the 2022 election and really worried about the 2024 election and think that we in the religious world have to be at the forefront of helping people focus on those um, and understanding elections actually matter. Uh, we need the demonstrations, we need the street activism, we need people expressing themselves culturally, but we need though that energy to be, you know, laser-like, making sure that when when it's time to vote, we're all out there voting and we have a movement supporting that election. I see it a little differently. I mean, uh, Rabbi Sharon, I, I totally agree with you. I feel the same anxiety about 2022 and 2024. <laughs> what worries me, I think I'm I think I may be more troubled about the prospects than you with respect to, to pro progressive religious groups. You know, if you think back to, to the presidential race in 2020, the and, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. There was a technical advantage that the pandemic presented to the Biden campaign. Yes. That is, they, they had to conduct that campaign virtually. There was virtually no door-to-door, -door, in person proxim proximity. And that was the central philosophical strand to the phenomenon of Donald Trump. He would do these big rallies, he'd get tremendous free media. But when he could no longer go on the road, well, he went on the road and they became super spreader events. And that was bad publicity. It's hard to spend, uh, you know, literally people dying as a result of coming to your rally. And so the Biden people took brilliant advantage of this of this really uh, pandemic induced limitation. And they let Joe be Joe. Uh, and they, the contrast between the president and Joe Biden as human beings, I think, made the difference in the election. 2022 is not going to be that way. 2024 is not going to be that way. What I think is missing is that progressives carpet bombed media outlets in the last six weeks. We spent literally hundreds, if not trillions of dollars, hundreds of millions, if not trillions of dollars, you know, carpet bombing television ads. And I don't think that moved the needle an inch in either direction. What's missing is proximity. The only way I am going to convince my conservative Christian relatives, brothers and sisters, is not because I give another $10 to some ad company to carpet bomb a Southern television station. It's going to be because I love them and I interact with them. I show up and try to persuade them. Now, there are technical ways of getting people out in the field, knocking on doors, sending mailers uh, to, to specific, specially targeted uh, communities. We've lost that ability in the Democratic Party to show up and be in proximity to the voters we need to persuade. I mean, if I if I concentrate my efforts and all my left wing friends living in suburban Washington, D.C., I have contributed nothing to changing. the. 
So I'm extraordinarily troubled and frustrated today that I'm still seeing donor circles start trying to, well, you know, we understand there's a black folk who might be, might be able to change the vote in Georgia. Well, Stacey Abrams said it takes a decade to flip a state and it takes a decade of people living in the state, talking to their neighbors, going door to door in their neighborhoods. You can't just fly in the last six weeks and say, hey, you don't know me, but I'm a Harvard educated Georgetown professor. I'm going to convert you to the Democrats in this 30 second exchange. That doesn't work. But that's where so much of the progressive money is going these days. It's not empowering local faith-inspired communities to go out into their wider community and deepen the relationships they already have. And if we don't do that, uh, we're going to lose in, in 22, and Trump may well get reelected in 24. But I am so tired. Tired doesn't even begin to capture my feelings in talking to a lot of progressive faith-related organizers where it's all about ad buys and you know, buying polls to tell us who's up two points, who's down two points. Very few people are putting money into the hands of local organizers who know where the persuadable folk in their communities are and giving them the money and resources to build an organization to do that. Everybody holds up Stacy as this amazing example, which is right. But precious few of my white lefty organizer friends are saying, well, how can she do that? And it wasn't because they made massive ad buys on radio and television in the last three weeks. And, and so this is part of, I think, those of us who are attached, grounded in faith communities, have something to say back to the leaders of, of progressive parties to say, you know, we, we agree with you on the policies. We want the president to succeed. We want Congress to be productive. But please don't come in my backyard and tell me how to mow my lawn. You know, you, you've got to learn and leverage the local knowledge because Taylor County, Texas is not the same as Fairfax County, Virginia. And I see this kind of one size fits all approach that you, you know, it's mainly media driven. And again, we have spent hundreds of millions of dollars in the last election cycle. And I don't see any evidence that that actually helps progressive candidates win. Uh, so I, Leah, to answer your question, I think this is what's missing. And I think Communities of faith are going to be the ones who have to convince the politicos that this is the truth. If you want to persuade people, you've got to empower people at the local level to engage their families, their churches, their neighborhoods. And it's not because uh, they're going to be seeing cool ads on uh, MSNBC because the persuadable folks are not watching MSNBC. So this is what I'm really fearful of. We've lost the ability, I think, politically to engage those people who are proximate to us, who disagree with us, and find ways to leverage the relationships and the history. And uh, I, I see it trending in exactly the opposite direction. I think you, you talk to progressive organizers and say, come with me to Western Kentucky, where I grew up, and, and let's start meeting evangelicals. And the laughter breaks out almost instantly. So it, it's this lack of proximity and it's a lack of funding to the people who are actually doing this work around the country, but who aren't, are not in our purview. They're not in our headlines because they don't live on the East or West coast. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think you're exactly right. And, um, and, and it's not a new notion in the democratic party, right? I mean, Stacy will tell you that part of, what she did was go into rural Georgia to people who hadn't seen a candidate in their lifetime. That's right. 
have actual conversations with voters. Um, I, I always think, it, I went to this meeting with, uh, I call them the ladies, it was a bunch of white women. And they were doing a, a post-analysis, post-election analysis. There were about 60 people in the room and I was one of two black people. And they were talking about, you know, what happened in the election. And um, this is this is after 2016. Um, and one of the ladies was was from one of our favorite progressive groups. And she started talking about how she was going to, uh, she didn't understand why she couldn't create partnership. Because after all, she she's in the community, she's moved to the community, to this black community, and she's having meetings, but no one comes. She has her organizing meetings every week and, and the people from the community don't come. And by that time I had just really had enough. And I said, you know what? How about you go to their meetings, sit in the back, shut the hell up, listen to what they are saying and figure out how you can engage them at the point that they want to be engaged. They're not coming to your meeting. You just got there. And so I, I, I referenced that to talk about, let's talk about, about this notion of allyship. And what does that really mean when we, and how are we, what are good allies? What do we mean when we say we want to be an ally or that we need an ally? And what are the most effective allyship? What do they look like? And which ones are complete disaster? Mm. Mike, what you want, what you, what you, because we did a lot of work around this in Black Church Pack. What, what's your experience you want to share here? Well, I mean, it, it is quite the question. Um, you know, I, I, I do believe that what we need from um, allies are what allies want for themselves. We just need them to um, extend their privilege, their access, their resources, their power um, in a, uh, to use a theological term from our tradition, in a kenosis, <laughs> a, a willingly uh, um, evacuating act of, of generosity. Um, on behalf of those that obviously uh, don't have much. I, I was in an argument with some progressive funders and, and political operatives and told them, you all would rather uh, rule in hell than serve in heaven, which means that um, you all would rather keep losing elections as long as you stay in power on the progressive spectrum versus win elections and you have to divest some of your power and leadership to non-white men. And, you know, uh, you can imagine I didn't get any funding from them after that conversation, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't want their dollars. I, I call it blood money and dirty money. And, and, and I, I do think that um, we have a conundrum within um, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party because this whole electoral process has become quite a boondoggle of, of windfalls of profits for consultants and communications firms. And uh, Brother Casey talked about pollsters. <laughs> I mean- Lawyers. It, lawyers. Uh, and, 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 you know, since we started the Black Church Pack, we've had to pay a nice little pretty penny uh, to stay in the game. But we realized that we had to do that because too many of our folks were not being activated. Too many of our folks were not being 
communicated with. Too many of our folks had had in in you talked about Georgia. Too many of our folks had folks from Iowa flying into Georgia to knock on doors and get paid fifteen, twenty dollars an hour versus you hiring some Georgians the same amount to knock on the doors in their own community. So what we need from allies, you know, particularly in the political space, is to appreciate that the base of the Democratic Party is still black voters, black women. Uh, continue to be the most consistent, faithful voting bloc. Um, we need uh, folks in the Democratic Party, the progressive side of the political spectrum, to imagine that uh, the rising American electorate, the, the majority of voters are going to be people of color. They're going to be non-white folks. So that means that we need to center non-white sensibilities and logics <laughs> in order to uh, save this democracy. And the last thing I'll say is we need elected officials to govern at the level of seriousness and urgency that this moment requires. Um, this idea that we are still trying to bridge with uh, voters who cannot, could not tell that Donald Trump was an imminent danger to not just this country, but to the world and, and we're still seeing them trying to rig the whole political process, keep people from voting, keep people from having access to, to uh, um, tax bases that can provide a safety net, keeping people from being able um, to uh, walk down the street without fear of being racially profiled or brutalized by the police departments. Um, until we have presidents and mayors and governors who are willing to uh, do away with archaic le legislature type tactics, whether it's the filibuster or these other procedural rules that block the, the majority opinions of Americans who do, I think, reach for justice and mercy more than they reach for exclusion and punitiveness. Uh, that kind of allyship is important too. govern, govern in ways that make people feel like their vote was not a waste even if their vote was for you or not. And I think um, hopefully that will help us. And, and uh, if, if I can say a quick word about what, how the black church needs to show up, the black church needs to also do some of our own repenting. You know, We've been on the wrong side of some issues related to uh, um, um, our uh, women and children in our, in our context. You know, uh, we, we're, we're still uh, too, um, uh, 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 critical of, of those among us who are poor and, 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 and living on the margins of society. Uh, obviously, our anti-LGBTQ sentiments continue to be a very important thing for us to repent from. Uh, our children are watching us and, 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 and coming out of COVID, mental health, mental illness, um, loss, grief. All of these things are going to be intersecting in very powerful ways in our communities. And we never know how the formation of our young people related to their racial, gender, and sexual identity may contribute to the mental health issues that are gonna be a result of COVID-19. So we have a lot of work to do, and I hope that we don't just look to allies outside of our communities as black folks, but we also look within our communities and become better allies to uh, our own loved ones and family members. So, Rabbi Sharon, I want to ask you because you you stand at sort of this intersection. You you know you've got the obviously the Judaism, but also as a key progressive leader in the LGBTQ community. What kind of allyships are helpful 
have been helpful and which ones have not been helpful? And then to my Pastor Mike's question, is there work you think that needs to happen in the Jewish community and in the LGBT community within itself to be Absolutely. better allies? How would you respond to that? Absolutely. The first, the first, you know, we have a famous saying in Judaism, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? But if I am only for myself, what am I? And that's the that's the challenge, right? That we have to make sure that we are thinking and taking care of our own. But if we stop there, then it's just, you know, narcissism. And it has to be linked with the, but if I am only for myself, what am I? What is that? That's not what God wants of us. So that balance is really important. And I think that that it's a that a lot of what's just been said is very profound. The first thing to do always is to listen, to us to be humble, to assume you don't understand uh, another's experience in the world. And um, you know, we say al como. Don't judge another person until you've been exactly in their steps. So that tells us all we have to be so humble and so open to learning, and we have to do we, that job is on each of us, right? Just as you said, Bishop, you got to sit in the back of the room for a while and listen, you know, and that's true for all of our experiences. And each of us, you know, look, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, we all embody all different kinds of identities, right? That are socioeconomic, that are gender identities, sexual orientation, race, all these different, and in some places they put us in positions of privilege. And in some, they put us in positions that are, that are not in privilege. And we always have to be asking ourselves the questions, are we listening enough to people or things to teach us who we don't normally have in our universe? And that's the first question we have to ask because privilege, usually the first thing privilege does is say, you're listening to the people who say things exactly, you know, they're your people. You're not listening to the people who have things to teach you who are not in your line of vision. And you got to do exactly what you said. You got to sit in the back of the room. You got to shut up. You got to listen. You got to educate yourself. And, and, and also, I want to say this. To be a really good ally, you have to make a lot of mistakes. And we have to forgive ourselves for making those mistakes. And we got to be generous in forgiving others. Because people who are genuinely trying screw up. We do it, our, you know, and we got to be gentle because it's a lot of work to w walk that path. And it's a path of revelation and a path of opening that you gotta you make a lot of mistakes. And I, so I think the first thing is we all respect, or you know, in my experience, so there are ways that I, and I think you're absolutely right. Jews were not white originally in this country, but as a European, now I get to, and in many places in Europe, Jews were, you know, the black people of Europe, and then came to America, and having white skin meant that Ashkenazic Jews were got to be a ladder up, you know, and we're many of them abused that position as opposed to understood what our role needed to be. Those are really complicated and it happens in all of our societies, right? People, as soon as they feel like, oh my God, there's somebody slightly below me, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to feel uh, better than or over as opposed to see an alliance with. So I think the first thing is that question, how do we shut up and listen? How do we appreciate people's trying hard, but often screwing up and encourage them to try again? And it's exhausting. It's annoying. But you know what? I keep saying this to my people. It is our job to be teachers. Yes, it's exhausting, but that's what it is to be on this earth. If we don't offer ourselves in all different kinds of ways 
And it goes, Sean, to what you said before about proximity. The way the gay rights movement really made a difference is that we had an, an ethos of speaking to our family members who hated us, speaking to our rabbis who hated us, speaking to our teachers who hated us and saying, you got to hear my story. And I really think that one of the reasons that the gay rights movement had such energy in this country is there was so much proximity. People, everybody, if you weren't gay yourself, you had somebody in your family or in your close circle of friends. And it started to challenge people's, you know, intellectual stuff, because exactly what was said before, you're sitting with a human being who is struggling with decency. And they say to you, listen, this is my story. This is not some external idea. This is me as a human being. And I really think that proximity issue worked and how do we keep that? How do we learn from the LGBTQ movement, which really, I mean, we used to have a speakers bureaus all the time where we would just send people out and I would coach people. And I did this constantly for years. I stopped after a while just because, you know, the dog and pony show gets a little tiring. But I would say to people, tell your story. Don't talk ideology. You know, don't tell people what their theology should be about, about it. Just tell your human story. And we've got to create more and more and more settings where people can tell their human stories and people can listen and we can all be a little vulnerable. And people are very moved by vulnerability, but it's scary. Mm. It's really scary. Well, this has been such a rich conversation and I hope for all of you who are watching and listening that you've enjoyed this first installment of Reasoning Together. I'm gonna to ask the last question for each of you as we're thinking about uh, your own work now, what you're working on, what are you feeling called to right now? Uh, what should we know about the work that you're doing? Where are you planting at this moment in time? Sean, we'll start with you. Oh, sister, that's a very dangerous question. <laughs> Shame on you. No, uh, no, it's a great question. Uh, I am, I'm really struggling with this notion of proximity. Uh, I, I have classrooms full of brilliant Georgetown students, and I, I absolutely love every minute of that because there's a generation, and you can't really generalize from a couple of classrooms full of kids, but, but this generation wants to change the world. But they're they're shaken because of what's happened in the Trump administration, and, and they're you know they want to go work in the foreign service, or they want to go work overseas for refugee resettlement. But they're really shaken to see uh, some very the basic facts of their world may not may not be there for the for the rest of their adulthood. So part of me says maybe I need to go back to that little one horse town in the Delta of the Mississippi River in Southwest Missouri, where there hasn't been a Democrat on a state legislator or House of Representatives ticket in decades. Now think about that. I mean, here, here's a quarter of the state of Missouri where there hasn't been a viable Democratic candidate on the ballot. Now, in my childhood, there were no Republicans on the ballot. So in, in my, so what, what does proximity mean? I live in a blue precinct. I live in suburban D.C. I, I don't think Virginia is going to go deep red anytime soon. So what does proximity mean for a guy who's been living and working on the East Coast for the last few decades of his life, but who's come to the, see, I, I think the one thing I would add to what you, you, you said, Sharon, was what do we learn? What, do, what have I learned in proximity with people who are radically different theologically and politically from me? 
And that's where my, my State Department training helped me because I sat across the table from religious leaders who didn't like the United States. And they had some justification for those feelings. And I always had to ask myself, what did I learn from talking to this imam? What did I learn from talking to this rabbi? What did I learn from talking to this Palestinian pastor uh, about my government and, and what maybe how we could we could behave differently? And how can I communicate that back to my, my bosses? Uh, and, and so they taught me uh, that I, you've got to show up, you got to listen, you got to ask really good questions. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I'm an arrogant East Coast professor, I tend to think my ideas are always the best ones. And so it was, it was good for me to spend four years then asking myself, what did I just learn from this conversation? Um, and, and so uh, to answer your question, Leah, I don't know. But if I'm preaching proximity on national podcasts, along with my brothers and sisters from the religious community, maybe physician heal thyself might be the, the message of the day. So I'll get back to you when I have a better answer. Rabbi? I think the notion for me of how to uh, more, um, I'm not sure if the word is intensify or deepen the roots or the branches, and again, I'm not sure, among the different religious communities who are sharing these progressive values. I think that's where I'm feeling a lot of energy right now and feeling like our our strength comes from being Strength from the from being with each other and finding ways to make our those roots and branches perhaps really overlap more and more and more and more. Pastor Mike, I am going to double down on peacemaking as my immediate commitment. Um, we've been successful in um, lobbying President Biden and uh, Susan Rice and Cedric Richmond and others in the administration to include $5 billion in the infrastructure plan to scale up gun violence prevention programming that saves lots of lives. Um, I believe uh, faith communities should be on the front lines of peacemaking work all across this country. Dr. King says, we who love peace must learn to organize as effectively as those who love war. And uh, too often, I think our religious traditions uh, give way to violence too easily um, rather than us being agents of peace. And so that's why I'll be doing all of our work uh, through the Black Church Pack and our Fund Peace Now uh, work. And um, we'll be glad to have more faithful citizens join us along the way. Well, Reverend Dr. Sean Casey, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, Pastor Michael McBride, thank you so much for joining me. In this inaugural episode of Reasoning Together to the Faithful Citizen. God bless you and the work that has been given to you to do. I'm sure you'll agree that that was a rich, thought-provoking, and inspiring conversation. Thank you for joining this episode of The Faithful Citizen. Be sure to follow us on social media at The Faithful Citizen. Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. See you next time. Blessings to you.